What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society Podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. It is Friday, April 16th for me. I haven't given you um, a date update for a while, so that means it is Saturday, April 17th, 17th. for Olivia. Right, and early 8, 12 a.m., so <laughs> I'm still waking up. I've still got my pajamas on, as usual. <laughs> 6.12 p.m. here, and I just got home from work a little while ago, so having having a white claw like a basic bitch, mm-hmm. and we're, we're ready to do this podcast. One day soon, I really am going to have some champagne, the champagne breakfast while we do this, but I haven't done it yet. <laughs> well, I have to like switch it up one day where yeah. it's the morning for me and the afternoon for you, but it's hard because I work most days at 7.30 in the morning. And I have kids, so I like to go to bed. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we'll have so. to switch that one day. <laughs> we don't have a lot of options. <laughs> so what's been happening? Well, I am half vaccinated. I got the first shot of the Moderna vaccine a couple weeks ago. And I think in like two weeks, a week and a half, I'll get the second one. That's so right now I am officially half vaccinated. Don't mean to brag, but mm. you know. I've got no chance of being vaccinated for so long, even though we've got basically no COVID here, which I guess is good because we also have no vaccinations. <laughs> so the vaccination rollout is really, really, really slow here. I mean, we'll be in the last group. Um, they were saying I think October was going to be that that would be the last group, but I don't even know if that will happen yet. It might be next year. So I'm a way off getting vaccinated, Are unfortunately. Are like getting it? Yeah, yeah. They like just don't. Well, they've also, what they've done here now is that we have Pfizer, AstraZeneca. I don't know if we do have the Moderna one here, but anyway, they've decided now that for a big age group, I think it's like 35 to 50, you can't have AstraZeneca because of the blood clotting issues. So now yeah. it's basically cut down to Pfizer. So I don't know why, why, I guess, you know, we're so far away from the rest of the world and we don't have, I guess, the facilities to make as much here. So maybe that's mm. why everyone's kind of using it for their own countries first, right? which I get, rather than exporting it. And especially here, it's not as urgent because there is no community transmission of COVID in this whole country. But it just means that, um, you know, I don't know, it's a slow rollout process. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, who knows? Who knows? I can't even get a flu shot yet. They don't even have the flu shot vaccine, so I don't know what's going on with that. But Really? Hopefully soon. I saw that they were talking about on the news today that they're thinking Moderna is going to try to make, like, the vaccine, I mean, the COVID vaccine and the flu shot, like, a together shot for, like, next year or something. I was. Re- so, I don't even know. I should have probably looked it up again, but there was some other vaccine that, I don't know if it was Moderna. It might have been Moderna, where they say now you might need a third one. Yeah, well, all of them I think you're going to need. I guess they don't know yet anyway. They don't know yet anyway because it hasn't been long enough for anyone to actually figure it out. Yeah, they were saying like right now as of like up to six months, they know Moderna and Pfizer are still like 90% effective. But after that, they don't really know because they haven't been able to like test that long. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But yeah. I know there was a lady who actually lived in my kind of area and she died this week after getting the AstraZeneca jab from a blood clot. Really? She, did have di- she did have diabetes. She was 48, I think, mm. um, which is, I guess, part of the reason why they've stopped it here. So it'll be yeah, interesting to see what happens. Yeah, that's like the drama we're having with Johnson & Johnson, but still. Yeah, better than nothing sometimes maybe. <laughs> yeah. Should we talk about the good reviews we got? Yeah, I've got them up if you want me to read them out. 
So after I've been begging you guys on the podcast <laughs> every week for some good reviews to boost my self-esteem, mm-hmm. we got a few, and my self-esteem definitely feels a little bit boosted. <laughs> so There's one from Jackson A or Jacksona, I don't know how you say it. <laughs> Hearing the host dive into cases feels like talking with my friends. Thanks for the great distraction while I fold laundry. And there was another one from Stace who said, I love this podcast. They seem to make things not seem quite as heavy while still recognizing that it's a serious issue. They both have nice voices. <laughs> My only complaint is they don't do podcasts weekly. So that was lovely. That was a nice little boost for our days. Yeah. I'd love to do a weekly podcast, but it's a lot of work, especially I edit it. Olivia usually does the research. So between working and all that, it is a lot of work. But, you know, maybe if you guys keep listening, keep leaving good reviews. Um, (laughs) Podcasting can be our full-time job, and then we can do it every week, maybe multiple times a week. Who knows? Maybe when we get our big break, we'll have finance to be able to do it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) We might be celebrities soon. (laughs) Don't ask about it because we won't tell you. Yes, thanks for the good reviews. Um, Leave us some more. I'm glad that you think my voice is nice because I think my voice is so annoying. <laughs> but so does everyone. Yeah, I guess people must be used to my upwards inflection now because I haven't had a comment about that in a little while. <laughs> oh, yeah. We used to get um, bad reviews of people who are mean being like, Olivia's accent is so annoying. And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, back to what this podcast is about crime so we have a little (laughs) we have a little update that we've been waiting for for a long time and that kyler used from kara kapetsky and jessica runyans was finally found guilty of their murders longest Um, longest uh, road to justice ever i guess really so it actually just came out a few hours ago this last update it says Today they deliberated for 90 minutes and the jury convicted Kyla Eust um, of the deaths of Kara and Jessica and they recommended that he spend 15 years in prison for a voluntary manslaughter charge and life in prison for a second-degree murder charge. Uh, so they found him guilty yesterday and then they kind of spoke about their recommended sentence today. Cass County Circuit Judge William Collins said you sentencing will take place at 2.30 p.m. on June 7. Uh, the judge will also decide on that day if the sentences will run concurrently and he will be eligible for parole. So I kind of hope they don't run it concurrently because that will be longer. Maybe I don't know how it works, like what what he'll be, because he's been in prison for a while too. So what he'll be eligible yeah. for in terms of a sentence reduction and things like that will be interesting to find out. But I'm glad that he was found guilty and they've recommended the maximum sentence for him. Yeah, I think I saw that when he, if he gets like the maximum, when he gets out of jail, he'd be like in his 70s. Like it doesn't (laughs) sound like as long as he deserves, but at least he'd be too old to really hopefully not do much damage. Because I feel like he's definitely one of those people that would get out of jail and reoffend if he were able to. He just seemed like a crazy asshole. And I can't imagine that spending that long in jail, like even, you know, I feel like, yeah, it wouldn't change him. He would still be... The same disgusting. No, it'd probably person. be worse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It says, um, I was just reading the article and it says that uh the range of punishment on the voluntary manslaughter charge for Kara's death should be 15 years. And he pointed out that Kara was around 15 when she met him. So it's ceremonious to give him 15 years, which is he interesting. Said that? 
Uh, no, the Cass County oh, Prosecutor. Was... Sorry, sorry, no, no, not not Kyla. The Cass County Prosecutor Ben Butler said that. So <laughs> I was like, wow, that's really bold of Kyla mm. to just be like, mm, very poetic. So both the families spoke um, at the, you know, in the court regarding the sentences. And Rhonda, who's Kara's mother, said to be technical, I don't really feel that justice was served as far as Kara's concerned. She said that her daughter was a bright and shining light snuffed out too soon. And she asked the jury to give the maximum sentence because she believes he will do this again. And she ended with, which is so sad. I'm so sorry, Kara. I tried. Mm. And then Jessica's mother, Jamie, spoke and said that she'll never get to see Jessica grow up and get married and have kids. And she um, asked the jury to consider both families when making their recommendation. If a person does stuff, they're going to do it again. And then her dad said, yeah. I don't get to walk my daughter down the aisle. Our family is broken forever. It's very sad. Mm. I feel like, you know, it's a promising sign that they've recommended the maximum and hopefully the judge will take that on board. Yeah. That is a crazy one. I remember Dana, her, Cara's mom, Kara's mom, she shared our podcast on her Facebook. Yes, I think she did. I'm pretty sure she did. So that made me so nervous, but proud at the same time. <laughs> it's nice when the family kind of realizes what we're trying to do and, you know, trying to tell the story fairly. And in that case, it was definitely for the girls and nothing, <laughs> nothing for Kyla. <laughs> no. Okay. So one other really interesting case, which I guess ties into something else that we're going to speak about too in a minute, is that there was there have been a lot of mass shootings this week or in the last, I shouldn't say this week, but in the last few weeks anyway. I think we're up to 10. It's literally been like two, three weeks. <laughs> yeah, I think we're up to 10 mass shootings in maybe two weeks now, so almost one a day. Um, there was one yesterday or that's just happened overnight, which was the FedEx one in Indianapolis where eight people, I haven't heard if there's been any more that have passed since, but eight people were killed by a 19-year-old guy who had been fired from there last year. So it just seems like every week there's, or every day almost now, there's another one of these cases. Um, and I know that you're talking about doing a episode on Parkland, the Parkland shooting. Yeah, I've been thinking about doing one on Parkland. Um, I'm from Parkland, Florida at Stoneman Douglas High School. That was on valentine's day in 2018 i've always found that one pretty interesting and i feel like that was one of the ones that kind of had a big response to it um along with sandy hook but i'm always fascinated by mass shootings like that for some reason i just think it's like what would drive someone to do that and just but i'm always hesitant because mass shootings and things like that are so triggering controversial yeah Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't get into any of the controversy. I would just want to tell the story. But if anyone is interested in an episode like that, let us know. And I'll definitely um, try to get it done a little quicker. Or if you're not interested in hearing that, let us know. (laughs) And then I won't waste my time. But it's in in my thoughts. One of the 10 cases that happened in the last few weeks, we heard about that there was a family in Allen, Texas, who were found dead. So just, you know, the article started saying the bodies of six people were found, that they were all from the same family. And it emerged pretty quickly that two brothers had um, basically agreed, made a suicide pact. Oh, and agreed this to kill- one. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah, so I couldn't you think, think of what it was. <laughs> I, I just like didn't really ever think about like that one being like in Texas. I was just like, whoa, look at this crazy note. <laughs> so it was a family of six in Texas and there was one of the guys who was found dead was named Farhan Tauhid. And he had basically left a suicide note on his Instagram. <laughs> Took us a while to get into it because the link didn't work, but we managed to find it. But it Got was this eventually. long rambling note about why he and his brother had agreed to kill their whole family so the notes on all of our websites it's on our instagram it's on our reddit it's on our group everywhere if you want to check it out and tmz stole it from me yes tmz stole it stole stephanie's screenshots and did not credit her which is very (laughs) i'm not surprised actually but you know some credit would have been nice for you i know especially since i'm always like i love tmz when everyone's like tmz is garbage they are but like i still love them (laughs) Um, I find that TMZ are very slow these days. We always know stuff like a day before TMZ do. Maybe it's da- just... Daily Mail has been quicker than them lately. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so I won't read the whole note because that will be the whole episode. But it basically, like it starts with, hey, everyone, I've killed myself and my family. If I'm going to die, I might as well get some attention. I'm going to cover four very important issues I've encountered throughout my life. Who knows? Some good might come of it. So then he goes on and he talks about his depression and how he cut himself and, you know, about what his family did to help him, which they did try to help him, I think it sounds like, but basically nothing worked. Um, and it goes on, you know, you, f- I, you feel sorry for him. It sounds, you know, obviously until he kills his whole entire family, but he had a tough life. Like he struggled a lot. And then it goes on and then he talks about how, like it says, we kept watching until February 21, 2021. That's the day my older brother came into my room with a proposition. If we can't fix everything in a year, we'll kill ourselves and our family. So then it goes on and on again. And then the one thing that he talks about, which is just so ridiculous, is the office. If the only Hmm. reason to live for happiness, then logically you shouldn't live if you aren't happy. That makes sense, right? Imagine being forced to watch the first half of season nine of The Office and finally put to sleep. (laughs) It's just like it's the most terrible, heinous crime and this is his goodbye note. So I posted it on um, Reddit and there was a few people who commented that knew him and someone said, I went to high school with one of the perpetrators. He was one year older than me. I didn't know him well, but he always seemed like a joyous, carefree, playful guy. I can't believe that he would do something like this. And then they added later, like responding to other people's comments, and he said, for those criticizing some aspects of the letter, Farhan was definitely a class clown type figure at school. I bet the office references were supposed to be seen as funny in his own twisted way. Yeah. Um, so anyway, then they talk about how they got the guns. His brother went to the gun shop, said something about a gun for home defense, signed some forms, and that was it. They asked if he had any mental illness. Get this. He lied. He literally just said no. They didn't ask for proof or asked if he was taking any medication, which he was. Um, and then the last line is, and now we're here. Well, I guess my family and I aren't, but you get the point. So it's just, I don't know, like it, I, I really feel, and I don't know if you feel the same, that there's been an increase in these mass shootings. In the, well, it has been in the last month, let's just say, because I don't know if people are coming out of lockdown. Things are getting relatively back to normal after COVID, you know, normal in as normal yeah, as they I can said, be. Yeah, I said like a few weeks ago when they were just like starting up again, I was like, well, you could tell the pandemic's getting better. <laughs> All the mass shootings are starting again. And I've seen so many and comments. It's like, just gotten worse. So many comments, wow, let's go back into lockdown. We need another lockdown to get rid of this and, you know, to stop this, which obviously isn't the answer, but it's just a sad situation where 
every, every it is every day at the moment. So hopefully things yeah. calm down soon, whether or not they will is something that will remain to be seen. Yeah, it's stressful, but Anyways, on to happier subjects. Just kidding. <laughs> because this episode, we're going to be talking about CTE. And if you don't know what CTE is, think about Aaron Hernandez. He was probably the biggest case of CTE being used in the sense of like a murder trial and all that. Um, I feel like ever since then, there's been, it's kind of become a more well known thing where. People who played football or WWE, hockey, anything like that, they are more at risk for trauma to their brain. And sometimes that results in them acting out of character and murdering people or killing themselves and things like that. So recently there was a case about an ex-NFL player, Philip Adams, and he ended up murdering his former, or at the time, his doctor, his wife, and their two grandchildren, and then killed himself. And he also, and two people who were just there working on the house. So he yeah, killed all air these people. conditioning, like service guys were there working yeah. on the house. So he killed all these people a few weeks ago and then killed himself. And they're wanting his brain to be tested for CTE. And I thought that maybe that'd be an interesting and different topic for our episode. So today we're going to talk about Chris Benoit from WWE who murder-suicided his family in 2007 and the Philip Adams case that I was just talking about. We'll start with what is CTE for those of us who don't know. I should have looked up how to pronounce it before we started, but I'm just going to give it a shot. I think it's chronic, chronic traumatic encephalop... No, okay, I fucked that up. Encephalopathy. Encephalopathy. Okay, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to. I was going to have a go, but you can just go... <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that in. <laughs> okay. So CTE is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, hopefully. <laughs> Close enough. It's, um, <laughs> you get it. <clears throat> it's the term used to describe brain degeneration likely caused by repeated head traumas. So one thing that's difficult about CTE and diagnosing it and kind of why it's only coming, becoming more well-known now is that it can only be diagnosed at the person's autopsy so they have to be dead in order for it to be actually diagnosed because they have to take like a cross section of your brain which obviously they can't do while you're alive cte is a rare disorder that is not yet well understood and experts are still trying to understand how repeated head traumas including how many and the severity of the head traumas and other factors might contribute to cte it's been found in the brains of people who played football and other context sports including boxing, professional wrestling. It actually may also occur in military personnel who are exposed to explosive blasts as well. And some signs and symptoms of CTE are thought to include difficulties with thinking, physical problems, emotions, and other behaviors. And it's thought that these develop years to decades after the head trauma actually occurs. And there is no cure at the time for CTE, except for maybe to get less head injuries. It's um, interesting to me that they can only diagnose it at autopsy. Like you th it must be so deeply embedded in their brain that they can't tell by, you know, scans or anything like that, where, you know, even they can usually diagnose brain tumours and things like that via scans. It's interesting that they can't diagnose CTE yet. Yeah, by, I think... Via any method while someone's alive. Yeah, I think, like, they could get an idea 
Like maybe if someone has, especially now that's more well known, if someone's having like these symptoms. Yeah. But I think what I read was that they need to like literally take like a full like cross section slice of your brain to be able to look at it properly because it's basically like your brain is rotting, I guess. Yeah. When you see the scans of these people who have it, you can like after obviously after the autopsy, you can see that there's some variation. I don't know what I'm looking for, but you know what I mean? Like you can tell that there's something different about the brain. Yeah, like the healthy brain. The brain they usually put it next to like a picture of a normal brain and then a brain with CTE. The brain with CTE looks like a little shriveled up raisin compared to the normal brain, which is like a regular nice scrape. Yeah. If that's the comparison I'm going to make. <laughs> um, a quote that I put here because I thought it was interesting is from Adam M. Finkel, a quantitative risk assessor at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. He said, having the disease can make it more likely for you to be depressed and even kill someone or yourself. But we'll never know if it was the only or the main cause of this tragic outcome. But the inability to prove that the disease caused any particular outcome should not be used to cast doubt on the broader point. The exposure to repeated head hits is strongly associated with a disease that increases various bad outcomes. One of the cases we're going to talk about today is Chris Benoit, who is a professional wrestler. Like I said, um, if you haven't, if you don't know the case, I feel like a lot of people know it because at the time in 2007, it was like huge news. But yeah. like I said, he killed his wife, his son, and himself. So I figured I would talk a little bit about CTE and the WWE. So currently there's an ongoing lawsuit against the WWE from 50 former wrestlers that's been going on for six years now. Um, The wrestlers are claiming that the WWE did not protect them from head injuries, including concussions that led to long-term brain damage. The various lawsuits have been going on for six years and have been dismissed and appealed several times. Most of the judges say that there's no evidence to prove that the WWE knew that concussions and yeah. head injuries could cause CTE or that the SOL has expired. I was going to say, like, this is still a new kind of science, I guess. So WWE has been going forever. That How could they be expected to protect people if they didn't know it was actually a thing? Yeah, but the plaintiffs are arguing that unlike in football or hockey, WWE matches are scripted and choreographed by the WWE, thus making the company directly responsible for their injuries. As of last month, a lawyer for the former wrestlers filed a request asking the Supreme Court to hear their case. And then similarly, in the NFL and the NHL, they were also sued by former players who suffered concussions and other head injuries. The NFL settled the lawsuit for a billion dollars, while the NHL settled for $18.9 million. So I guess just knowing that they settled shows that there is some proof to that. But like you said, it's even if you do know that concussions and stuff like that obviously aren't great for you, there's really no way to prove that the WWE knew that this could be the outcome. Yeah, it'd be different if they were, you know, someone had started today. They they should obviously be protected, but for people who have been in it 20 or 30 years ago or whatever. Yeah, yeah now they're, the WWE is more strict about head injuries and concussions. Like sometimes people get a concussion, they're out for months and months. Meanwhile, back in the 80s and 90s, people would get concussed and just keep wrestling, keep getting head injuries because so little was really known about it. But... Something that they pay more attention to now, at least. Yeah. Like I said before, even if you're not a wrestling fan, you probably heard of the murder-suicide involving Chris Benoit, as it was major news when it happened. 
On June 24, 2007, Chris was scheduled for the live WWE Vengeance pay-per-view where he would win the World Championship title for a third time. After not being able to contact Chris for some time, the WWE asked police for a wellness check, and they found the bodies of Chris, his wife Nancy, and their seven-year-old son Daniel in their home in Fayetteville, Georgia. So I'm going to put in some clips as we go about this like we usually do, but I just wanted to give credit to where they're from a lot of them um a lot of them are from a show called dark side of the ring which is on vice it's a pretty new show like i only watched this episode within the last year it's season two their first and second episode are about chris benoit and it's really well done if you listen to this and find that you're interested and want to learn more about it i would definitely check it out um they have like all the crime scene photos on there they have all the different experts, wrestlers, telling the whole story. But it's definitely worth checking out. So a lot of the clips I'm going to use throughout this are from the interviews that they did on that show. My name is Dennis Big. I run the security for World Wrestling, and one of our wrestlers that lives down there is missing. Okay, what's his name? Chris Benoit. It was a particularly brutal and vicious murder. It was something that showed some sign of real rage. This was just this gentle giant. Nobody expects a friend to kill their family. Like, what? I can't point my finger at one thing and say, this is what caused my brother not to snap. Media's initial response was that this was a roid rage incident. You get hit in the head thousands of times. Your brain essentially can start to rot. People need to understand that that was not him. He was my hero. I need to talk about this. If you're going to say I'm glorifying a murder, stop listening now. So Chris Benoit, who was he, if you don't know? Chris Benoit was a 40-year-old Canadian professional wrestler who shot to stardom while employed by the WWE. He is one of the most beloved and respected wrestlers in the industry during his time. He's been referred to as, quote, one of the top 10, maybe even top 5 greats of all time. Um, he held 22 championships between WWE, WCW, NJPW, and ECW, which are all different wrestling companies. Chris Benoit was on the radar as a pro wrestler since, gosh, the 80s. I'm Jim Ross, got in wrestling in 1974. I'm now the senior advisor to AEW. I'm a wrestling fan, so if you're a wrestling fan, how could you not be a fan of Chris Benoit's work? He's always considered one of the best workers ever, even when he's young. He was just a natural. My name is Chris Jericho. I've been wrestling for a long time, almost 30 years. And watching Chris Benoit was one of the reasons why I really enjoyed Stampede Wrestling and why I started really thinking, maybe I can do this. Benoit's a rookie, but he does have the moves. To watch Stampede Wrestling, you could tell that the guys were smaller guys. They were not as tall as the giants that you could find in the WWF. I thought, wow, like they're kind of my size. So in that aspect, someone like Chris Bemo was kind of an early influence on me. The most intense and believable performer I've ever been in the ring with. He could see things that would happen before they happened. His first job was wrestling, and his last job was wrestling. All he ever did was wrestling. The only thing he ever got a paycheck from was, was wrestling. 
So many wrestling fans will remember him as one of the most elite wrestlers of his generation, but the 2007 tragedy permanently tainted his name and essentially erased him from WWE history. He's been totally blacklisted, like very hard to find. They took him out of everything, not on their website, anything. They cut all ties with him after this. So his wife, Nancy, who was Nancy? Nancy was an American professional wrestling valet, an occasional professional professional wrestler, and a model. So a wrestling valet is basically another term for a manager, which is basically a supporting character who's paired with a wrestler to add to their story. So like they walk them to the ring. They're usually the one that talks more, like causes more of the drama for the character. So Nancy would be the one to usually walk out with whatever guy she was paired with at the time. And she was kind of always like the pretty girl that the wrestlers were fighting over. So she was best known for her appearances with ECW and WCW in the mid-1990s. And her ring name was Woman. (laughs) It's very original. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's always annoyed me, just Woman. but. (laughs) So after modeling in a wrestling magazine, she met her second husband, Kevin Sullivan, who convinced her to join his wrestling entourage, and after some convincing, she agreed and took the rig name Fallen Angel. She's a Hall of Famer all across the board, in my opinion. She was a pioneer and one of the best at a role that doesn't exist anymore. As a pro wrestling manager, she created the role, she perfected the role, and then when she stopped doing it, the role basically disappeared. I would like nothing better than to see Nancy, uh, you know, Nancy Benoit. Once again, you can't even say that name, right? Woman. I would like nothing better than to see woman be put into the WWE Hall of Fame. So Nancy became part of Kevin Sullivan's stable of kayfabe Satanists. She and Kevin traveled throughout the United States using the Satanist gimmick for promotions. It's kayfabe. So, I didn't know. (laughs) No, like, I didn't even add this part. I was just reading my notes i should have prefaced in the beginning of this i was never like a wrestling fan or anything like that until i started dating my boyfriend now who i've been dating for five years so i got into it so i was reading the notes to him before i did this to make sure i had everything right and he's like well you're going to say what a kayfabe is and i was like i didn't know it was like a thing where i had to say what it is because i had no idea what it meant so he told me what it meant and what it means is they don't really do this anymore now but back in the 80s and 90s when wrestling it was more like a mystery on if it was scripted or not it kayfabe means that the wrestlers keep their characters in real life like outside the show whereas now it's like you know they have their character when they're filming yeah but still all the wrestlers like even if they're enemies on the show they can hang out but back then like if macho man was like fighting this other guy and they were enemies like you wouldn't catch them like hanging out having drinks together later like they would still pretend they were enemies in real life yeah so this comes into play later a little bit but so basically nancy and kevin sullivan they were pretending they were satanists all the time for the show so in 1985 then kevin and nancy got married and this was her second marriage her first husband we looked there's not much about him he's kind of stayed private so not gonna really bother talking about him but (laughs) there's her second marriage so from there she continued on as a wrestling manager for various wrestlers until eventually she'd meet chris benoit Like I said, Chris and Nancy met in 1997 while they were both still married to other people. Chris at the time was married to a woman named Martina, and they had two kids together named David and Megan. Martina has mostly remained out of the spotlight ever since they got divorced, so 
There's not really much to say there. So Kevin, her, Nancy's husband that we were just talking about, he is known for basically having booked his own divorce. Like, that's the joke. Like, Kevin booked his own divorce because Kevin, he was also a wrestler, and he would help create the different various storylines that were going on in the WWE. So Nancy was his manager, so she would walk him to the ring. Like, they were husband and wife. Like, they played husband and wife. And since he, at the time, was having a feud with Chris Benoit, they thought it would be a good story for Nancy to be secretly having an affair with Chris to just add to the drama of it all. This is where the kayfabe comes into play because then even outside of the wrestling, Chris and Nancy would like go on dates, go out to dinner together so people would see them together and think that it was like true. So that was great. Added a lot of drama to the story, especially added drama to the story when Chris and Nancy actually end up falling in love and having an (laughs) affair and she leaves Kevin for Chris. (laughs) So that's that. So these are some clips from Kevin talking about their relationship from the Jim Cornette Experience podcast, um, saying how they kind of had a tumultuous relationship to begin with. And some of this stuff is hard to talk about, but during that time period, it, it and especially right when when then when Benoit came into WCW, I think you were the booker by that point in time. But you and Nancy had already started to have issues. This wasn't a thing where it suddenly Benoit was introduced into the equation and and suddenly there became problems. The problems preexisted. Am I correct? Right. We had had problems for before Chris came in for six months. I mean, things. Hey, it happens daily. Uh, it happened to us. We grew apart. Truthfully, there was that age difference when she spent her early 20s with me, not, you know, not seeing the, she saw the world, but not on her own. And uh, Benoit, when we put him with her, his wife was pregnant at the time. And he was very leery about it because he, he had a meeting with Eric and I, and he said, I got to make sure my wife doesn't get upset about this. He was very concerned. She was pregnant at the time. So, yeah, uh, we had probably, I'm going to say, six months we had had have problems. We had two houses at the time uh, that we lived in, and uh, – I was spending more and more time down the Keys, and she was spending more and more time in Daytona. And, I mean, uh, we knew where we were headed, that we were headed for, you know, a divorce somewhere down the line. And uh, we tried to patch it up a couple of times, but things just didn't work. One of the I just I just have to come out and say it. One of the the things that was covered initially with the initial coverage back in 2007 when the whole thing happened in Georgia, uh, it was reported a bit then, and some people in the wrestling profession obviously knew about it, but it hasn't been talked about a lot since. And I went back in the vault and got a copy, People Magazine, July 16th, 2007. Uh, a story on the incident in Georgia, but that's one of the only places that I could find that it reported 
It's a true fact that the only report of domestic violence between you and Nancy during your entire relationship was made out against her for attacking you. Uh, yeah, I've never brought that up to me. And, uh, you know, if you look at it, there were charges put on her. She spent three days in jail and she stabbed me with a knife. And uh, that was the breaking of our relationship completely. Then I never went back ever to Daytona. And uh, I had, I paid for her to get out of jail, but I never brought it up because the respect I had for mother and father. And I know it was, it weighs heavy on their heart. I used to say to myself, I don't, I can carry this. I can carry it. They can't. So, Chris and Nancy began their affair in 1997, and within that year, they got engaged also. Their son Daniel was born on February 25th, 2000, and they got married in November 2000. Chris was a nice person, and all I knew about him was that he helped my sister in a time that she really needed it. So for that, he instantly had my thanks and my admiration. And she was in love, more in love than I'd ever, ever seen her in my life. The way they looked at each other, we're like, oh yeah, it's gonna work. And Nancy and I became master friends. Chris decided that he wanted to push his career forward a little bit. And then she just really, really, really wanted to focus on building the house and starting a family. And then all of a sudden, Daniel was born. I've never seen Chris so beyond himself, just excited. But then, fast forward to May 2003, Nancy filed for divorce, citing the marriage as irrevocably broken and alleging cruel treatment. So in the divorce papers that she filed, Nancy included a petition for protection from domestic abuse against Chris, claiming Chris, quote, lost his temper and threatened to strike her and cause extensive damage to their personal belongings, and that included their furniture. Nancy added that she was in, quote, reasonable fear for her own safety and that of the minor child. But three months later, she dropped the suit along with the restraining order she had filed against Chris. So even though it was dropped, it kind of shows you that things were... history. Yeah, tumultuous at the time. Nancy's sister, Sandra Tofaloni, did an interview with the two count, and she said... I lived in Atlanta and my sister asked me home almost every one of my days off. I want to be clear. Chris was not an abusive husband, but there were what we call in the industry, though don't often talk about, high spots. She had been there in that position before and refused to put up with it at all, especially with Daniel in their home. So I went with her after one of these incidents to file an order of protection. She said a high spot is considered Yelling, screaming, name-calling, shoving, pushing, and breaking stuff, which I don't get how that's not abuse, but okay. When she was asked why Nancy dropped the divorce proceeding, she said, because like with any marriage where there's issues, they made up and wanted to reconcile, especially for Daniel. Which you see a lot in all these true crime stories, especially. <laughs> Break up, get back together for the kids. I was thinking about when you were talking about this, was about the Lori... Valo one, you know, where her ex-husband, you know, did the divorce and then dropped it and then she killed him. So, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> After she tried to steal all his money. Mm -hmm. 
I feel like it's never good when someone files for divorce and then drops it. I feel like it probably almost never works out. Stick to your gut, guys. (laughs) So it's been noted that one of the biggest events leading up to the murder-suicides and kind of what seemed like Chris's major breaking point was the death of his best friend and fellow wrestler Eddie Guerrero. So nobody in WWE was affected more by the death of Eddie Guerrero than Chris, who was his best friend. People close to Chris have said that they were completely taken back by how emotional he was following Eddie's passing in 2005. So the two men came up in business together and were extremely close in WCW and WWE, wrestling countless matches against one another on a nightly basis. Um, At WrestleMania 20 in 2004, they each won big. Chris nabbed the Raw's World Heavyweight title and Eddie successfully defended the SmackDown WWE Championship. Their embrace to close the show is one of the most iconic shots in wrestling history. So I have this photo here. I know you can't see it, but it'll be on our blog, which we always tell you guys to check out for things like this. But it's just a picture of them hugging with the belts and lots of confetti celebrating. Happier times. I have never, ever seen a closer relationship or friendship between two wrestlers as I did between Chris and Eddie. It was an actual, real, no bullshit, out of the ring, caring relationship. Chris is very quiet, very reserved, and it took a while for him to trust somebody. Eddie would be his go-to guide. He'd go and talk to him about certain things, you know, whether it be marriage problems or family or, or professional problems. They'd always confide in each other, and that's what their friendship was. And I know that Chris didn't have that with a lot of people. So when Eddie died in 2005, he died of an enlarged heart. Chris's world came tumbling down. He passed away suddenly in his hotel room at the age of 30 after suffering a heart attack due to what is suspected as prolonged drug use. This is a clip of Chavo Guerrero talking about Eddie's death and kind of how they all found out about it and how he told Chris. And Chavo Guerrero is Eddie Guerrero's nephew. So we get off the plane in Minneapolis, check into our hotel that we always go to. And we had seen Chris in the lobby also. Say, I'll see you down in the morning. Okay, seven o'clock and we're going to go work out. It's set. You know, three of us together, just the way it was. Eddie goes to his room, I go to my room. Next morning, I get a call about 5.30. It's the front desk. Something's wrong with your uncle. You know, something's wrong with my uncle. So I get a knock on my door, security guard, and he's taking me into Eddie's room. I go, what's going on? He goes, well, your uncle didn't, he didn't answer his wake-up call. So we came to his room and knocked, no answer. With a latch on, that means someone's in here. So they cut the latch off. I walk in and I look in the bathroom and I see Eddie face down. He's in his underwear, his toothbrush was in his hand. I grab him, I kind of try to shake him and he's, he's moving and I hear him gurgling, like And I'm like, Eddie, Eddie, wiping his face and, and, and he's like, um, He's, uh, he's, he's still there, man, and, and he's, we're trying, and then all of a sudden, he's in my arms, and he's, he's not there anymore. He passed in my arms, like, literally. Uh, hold on.
haven't been to this moment in a long time. Then I get a call from Chris. And Chris goes, hey man, I'm downstairs, where are you? Hey man, are you sitting down? And he goes, yeah. And I go, uh, Eddie passed away this morning. And all you hear is, uh, from a guy with no emotion whatsoever, you hear a wail. Just this wail from deep down, like a heartbreak. If you've ever heard one, this was a heartbreaking. Um, Chris Jericho, who is a close friend of theirs, well, was a close friend of theirs, and he is still a very popular wrestler at this time with AEW. He said that Eddie's death broke Chris to his core. When they saw each other at the funeral, Jericho recalled getting a hug from Chris that was the most desperate, saddest, I'm hanging on for dear life hugs that you could ever get. He noted how Chris was letting out deep, hitching sobs during Eddie's funeral and had to be consoled. In the past, those close to Chris said that he rarely showed emotion, and it wasn't until Eddie's death that he really began letting his feelings out. And Eddie, I, I know, I know that, that you, you're in a better place, and I know that you're looking down on me right now. And I want you to know that I love you, I miss you. <laughs> Eddie, you made <laughs> you made such a great impression on, on my life, and I want to thank you for everything you've ever given me. I want to thank you from my heart and tell you that I love you and I'll never forget you. And I will see each other again. I love you, Eddie. <laughs> Greg Oliver, who is the founder of Slam Wrestling, which is a sports website in Toronto, he shared an email that Chris sent to him after Eddie's death that says, in part, my wife Nancy bought me a diary and I have started to write letters to Eddie. It may sound crazy, but that's how I'm coping. Chris Benoit's diary is revealing new information about his state of mind. The wrestler wrote a series of letters to his best friend. At one point, Benoit wrote, I'll be with you soon. Mike Benoit believes it's the diary of his son going mad. We just didn't understand this was going on at that time in, in Chris's life. So after Eddie's death, Chris became more and more of a hermit. He refused to see anyone and only made things worse by never taking time off from the WWE. Every arena, every city, it all reminded him of Eddie. And those who were very close to Chris could tell that it was trying to change him and that something was seriously wrong. Um, this is a quote from Nancy's sister from that same interview I mentioned before. It's really long, but it gives a lot of insight into kind of like his mindset at this time and where things how people started to know that something was wrong. So I'm just going to read it all. Um, this turn of events was not sudden. In early 2006, they were looking into putting Daniel in a private Christian school, the best school in the area. Many athletes' children attended this particular school, and the high level of security was related to the caliber of the families of the children who went there. In order to get Daniel into that school, Chris and Nancy had to attend church service regularly. 
Although my sister and I were raised strictly Catholic, Chris did not subscribe to any one religion in particular. He developed an interest in Eastern religion and philosophy while wrestling in Japan. This interest got stronger when it was time to get Daniel into private school. When my brother-in-law wanted to do something or learn something, he fully invested himself into it. His dedication to his career and his relationship with my sister are proof of this. I used to tell him where to look and what books to read that may be of interest to him. Before all that, Chris had suffered multiple losses of friends. Eddie Guerrero's death in 2005 shocked us all. No one was prepared for that. It was devastating for Nancy, but it was devastating for Chris on a whole nother level. Eddie's passing came after a long line of huge losses, and Chris was in a state of perpetual bereavement. His, as well as Nancy's closest friends, passed away, and it always seemed to be of drug they always seemed to be drug or steroid related. After Eddie passed away, Chris and Nancy discussed the possibility of Chris leaving the WWE and starting his own wrestling school. However, the WWE was prepared to give Chris a big push and put him into another championship match. So Chris began training harder and pushing his body further. Chris did a lot of self-medicating. My brother-in-law made every show. He went to every production meeting, never missed a call, never missed a flight, and always drove himself or made travel arrangements. Chris wasn't schizophrenic. Someone with schizophrenia wouldn't be able to do all that. He had a serious drug problem, used a lot of steroids, and was certainly not alone in that at the time. The paranoia was a direct result of the abuse of steroids. The last two weeks I spent with Chris, we used to go to the gym and go tanning together. At some point, he began acting weird, and I wondered what was wrong with him. He would find 30 different routes to drive to the gym, which he never did before. This was a result of combining steroids with pain medication and, later on, alcohol. I'd never seen him like this before. The final blow came in mid-June 2007, just a few days before everything happened, when Sherry Martell passed away. That devastated Nancy just as much as Eddie's death, as much as Eddie's death had devastated Chris. I remember my sister telling me, I don't know how much more of this I can take, and I don't know how much more of this Chris can take. So that brings us to the murder-suicide. The murder-suicide took place over a three-day period from June 22nd to June 24th, 2007, at Chris and Nancy's home in Fayetteville, Georgia. His friends in the WWE grew concerned after he no-showed the various events for that weekend. I'm kind of going to go through it in the way it happened, so you'll find out what really happened afterwards. So, like, in live time, I guess. (laughs) Saturday, June 23rd, 2007. Chris was scheduled to appear at WWE SmackDown Live event in Beaumont, Texas. So at 3.30 p.m., fellow wrestler Chavo Guerrero, who I spoke about before, Eddie's nephew, received a voicemail from Chris saying that he missed his flight and overslept, so he would be late to SmackDown. Chavo called Chris back, and he confirmed everything he said in his voicemail. Chris sounded tired and groggy before ending the call with, I love you, and that gave Chavo a bad feeling because that wasn't something they'd normally say. After that. Chavo decided to call Chris back just to make sure everything was okay, but he didn't answer. So he left him a message asking for Chris to call him back. 3.44, a couple minutes later. Chris called Chavo back saying that he was trying to change his flight with Delta, and that's why he didn't answer. He mentioned having a really stressful day due to Nancy and Daniel being sick with food poisoning. Brings us to 4.30 p.m. Dean Malenko, who is another wrestler who traveled with Chris regularly. He called Chris from outside the airport to see where he was since he hadn't turned up. Chris told him that Nancy was throwing up blood and that Daniel was also throwing up and that he suspected they had food poisoning. 
He told Dean that he changed his flight and would arrive in Houston at 6.30 and then he would drive to Beaumont. Like an hour later, 5.35, Chris called WWE Talent Relations saying that his son was sick and that he and Nancy were at the hospital with him. So you can see the story is kind of already changing here. Yep. Um, he told them that he'd be taking a flight to Houston later to make it to SmackDown, but he'd be late. 6.10, a Talent Relations employee called Chris back and asked what time he would arrive in Beaumont. Chris told him that he was leaving Atlanta at 9.20 p.m. Eastern Time, so he would arrive in Houston at 9.24 Central Time. But SmackDown is live and is only until 10, so clearly that kind of wasn't enough time. So the employee told Chris that it'd be too late for him to make it to SmackDown, and that instead of rushing to Beaumont, he should take the flight and then rest up for the big pay-per-view the following day. 6.13 p.m. This is like, it's weird to me because it's literally three minutes later and it says mm. the talent relations employee called Chris back again to reconfirm the plan, but Chris didn't answer. So the employee left a voicemail telling Chris again to take the flight and rest up. Then this is at 3.53 a.m. Now it's Sunday. Chavo got texts from Chris's phone. 3.53 a.m. The first one says, C, comma, S. My physical address is 130 Green Meadow Lane, Fayetteville, Georgia, 30215. And then the second message says, the dogs are in the enclosed pool area. Garage side doors open. Then a minute later, at 3.54 a.m., Chavo got two more texts, but this time they were from Nancy's phone and said the same thing. My physical address is 130 Green Meadow Lane, Fayetteville, Georgia, 30215, sent twice. Um, a few minutes later, 3.58 a.m., Dean Malenko, who we spoke about before that called him from the airport, he got a text from Nancy's phone also saying, my address is 130 Green Meadow Lane, Fayetteville, Georgia, 30215. So obviously that's pretty weird. Would be a red flag to anyone, I think, but it doesn't really result in anything until later. So throughout the day, WWE made several attempts to contact Chris and check local hospitals in the Atlanta area. Because this was like, it was like a big pay-per-view where for him to not show up was like a big deal. Um, so as of 11 p.m. that night, they still had him in contact with him and he didn't show up for the Vengeance pay-per-view. Johnny Nitro took his place fighting against CM Punk for the ECW World Championship. Introducing CM Punk's opponent, the man who will be replacing Chris Benoit... Johnny Nitro! Well, fans, this past week on ECW, both CM Punk and Chris Benoit won qualifying matches and uh, were supposed to face one another here for the ECW world title, but because of personal reasons, Chris Benoit is not here tonight at Vengeance Night of Champions, so instead, Johnny Nitro, former two-time Intercontinental Champion. As you said, uh, Chris Benoit, for personal reasons, from what we understand, unfortunately is not here, but... It's weird that Chavo didn't, or maybe he did and they just haven't released it, but he didn't try to get in contact because, you know, it says the day before he called him back a minute or two after because he was worried. So you think that if he was worried about things going on, he would have checked in during the day too. It's interesting that either he didn't or they haven't, maybe he just feels guilty. Like, I'm assuming he did, but it's, yeah, like it's weird to me because then the next thing is Monday the 25th, 2007. Mm. So it's a whole, more than 24 hours after. Yeah, so 12.30 p.m. is when kind of like WWE official people learn about the text and yeah. then actually decide to do something about it. So I, I, maybe it's because they were busy, like they were all fighting in the pay-per-view too. So, yeah. But yeah, it's just weird to me that 
This pro- there must be it some gaps. Of- I think that we just don't know about. Surely he would have tried to get in contact at some point. I feel like they. S- uh, I have to look back to explain it, but I feel like in Dark Side of the Ring, when because Chavo's on there talking about it, I think that he said like you know like the guys like they were all talking about it, kind of like in the locker room, being weird and how it was strange. But I guess like WWE officials didn't find out until later. Yeah, okay, so, like if sense. I got like weird text from my friend at like four in the morning with like the address saying like where my dogs are and stuff like that. I mean, it's because like, I follow true crime, but that would automatically be like, I need to call the police right now because something's seriously wrong. Yeah, I'll be like, why you? Yeah, yeah, I know, it's weird. But who knows, different times. Um, so like I said, Monday, June 25th now, 12.30 p.m., WWE was notified of the text sent to the two co-workers. 15 minutes later, they contacted the Fayette County Sheriff's Office and requested a welfare check on Chris, you know, since they have his address that he sent them. 42 times. <laughs> Hi, uh, I just spoke to one of the other officers there. My name is Dennis Fig, and I'm a retired detective in New York City. I run the security for World Wrestling, and one of our wrestlers that lives down there is missing, and he told me to just to say we need a welfare check done. Okay, what's the address? Uh, 130 Green Meadow Lane. The zip code is 30215. All right, Dennis, what's your last name? Fagan, F-A-G-A-N. And what's his name? Uh, Chris Benoit. It's spelled B-E-N-O-I-T. Okay, and he's a, a wrestler? Yes, he's, what, what happened, he's a very religious gentleman, and yesterday he was supposed to show up at a pay-per-view and never got on the plane, never showed up. They tried to reach his wife, Nancy. She doesn't answer. They tried to call his house. It's, unlo- it's, it's out of character for him. So at 3 o'clock this morning, there was a message left from one of the other wrestlers, and basically it says uh, uh, the dogs are in the backyard, the back door is open, goodbye. And that was it. Four p.m., WWE received a call from Fayette County Sheriff's Office advising that they entered the house and found three deceased bodies, a male, female, and child. The house was secured as a major crime scene and that they had no further information at that time. So after doing some poking around, investigators determined that on that weekend of the murders, that that Friday, Chris had a barbecue with Daniel outside by the pool. Um, On Friday evening, it appears there was some sort of altercation between Chris and Nancy that resulted in Chris restraining Nancy with duct tape. He then utilized a telephone cord to strangle her while pushing his knee into her back which is what killed her. He then placed a Bible next to her body, and investigators noticed that there were a number of beer cans and beer bottles that may indicate that they were drinking. Next morning on Saturday, Chris gave Daniel Xanax and then murdered him in his bed by either suffocating him with a pillow or by placing him in a chokehold. And I'll get more into that later about why it's a this or that. Um, He placed the body next to Daniel's body also. After that is when Chris made those phone calls about the food poisoning and all that that we were just talking about before. So by the time he was calling all these people, telling them they were sick, they were already dead. Um, So that night, Chris went to bed with the bodies of Daniel and Nancy in the house. On Sunday, Chris made a few searches online. First, he looked up the story from the Bible about the prophet Elijah and a story about the resurrection of a dead boy. He then made another search, which was for the least painful way to break your neck. From there, Chris went down to his home gym with a half-drunk bottle of wine, wrapped the cord from his lat pull-down machine around his neck, 
and set the weight to 240 pounds. When he released the weight, it immediately broke his neck. I don't know why I always thought that when this murder-suicide was by gun. I don't know. I don't think I ever knew that that's how he killed himself until, you know, we're doing this. Crazy. Yeah. It's a very creative way to... Mm. I don't think I've ever, ever yourself. heard of another suicide like that. Yeah, and you, you would know. You know them all. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely weird. But So it was later discovered that Chris left some sort of suicide note, and by later I mean like months later at least, in a Bible that was separate from the ones he left besides Nan- beside Nancy and Daniel. Chris wrote a note that said, I'm preparing to leave this earth. And it wasn't discovered until... Some of Chris's belongings were sent to his first wife, the mother of his two other kids, and she was the one who actually looked through the Bible and found the note. Um, there wasn't a date on it or yeah, anything. I, but it was- I wish it had have been dated so we could have known how long this was going on for. Yeah, like how long he was thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. So once their autopsies came out, we learned a little bit more. So for Nancy, um, I thought this was interesting, but said officials said there was no signs of an immediate struggle. Toxicology found alcohol, Xanax, hydrocodone, hydromorphone in her system, but at therapeutic levels rather than toxic, and I think she was prescribed them. But they weren't sure if the alcohol was from her drinking alcohol or from her body decomposing. Just like Paul Swenson. (laughs) I know, that was the first thing I thought of, too. But, I mean, there was a lot of, like they said, a lot of bottles, empty and half-drank bottles around, so... Plus, if she was drinking on Xanax, that might explain why there was no struggle. Because you would think she would fight back. Yeah, but even though they say it was at therapeutic levels, maybe she was still passed out when it happened. I don't know. It just seems like, you know, I don't know, therapeutic. I know it's probably not right, but therapeutic to me just means, you know, everyday levels. But who knows? Yeah, but even like if you're prescribed like a certain amount of Xanax, and that's what you take, but then you drink Mixed on top of other, that. And with other stuff. Like, yeah, it could make yeah. you black out. Yeah. Um, but regardless, the medical examiner said that he saw no, no evidence that she was sedated before she was killed like Daniel was. So for Daniel, once his report came back, what I said before about how he might have killed him with a pillow or might have killed him with a chokehold, first they initially thought that he smothered him with a pillow. But then I guess when the autopsy came back, it was argued that... He might have put him in a chokehold because his throat area had internal injuries, but there wasn't any bruising. So I, I personally don't know why one would mean one and mm. one would mean the other, but that's why it's debated which really happened. They, were, they weren't able to determine exactly when Daniel had died, but his body had only just begun to decompose, and it wasn't as decomposed as Nancy's. So it's fair to say that he was killed after her. Scott Ballard, the Fayette County DA, said in a press conference, while we don't have that nailed down completely, meaning the times of death, it would appear that some period of time elapsed between the death of the two victims and the suicide, and it struck me as somewhat bizarre that perhaps he would be in the home with their deceased bodies. So for Chris's autopsy, his blood tested positive for hydrocodone and Xanax, both within the normal range again. His heart was actually three times the normal size. It was enlarged. And this is kind of like the most contested part of his autopsy is his testosterone levels were 10 times above average due to a synthetic form of hormone. So I'll go over this more later when I talk about the theories, but 
it doesn't that doesn't automatically mean that he had steroids in a system. In fact, they said that quote there were no other steroids or artificial steroid-like drugs found in his urine. And there's no indication that anything in Chris's body contributed to his violent behavior that led to the murder suicide. Immediately after the murders, WWE posted a statement to their website that said there are no further details at this time other than the Benoit family residence is currently being investigated by local authorities. WWE extends its sincerest thoughts and prayers to the Benoit's families, relatives, and loved ones in this time of tragedy. So it wasn't immediately known at the time, like with any murder-suicide, that Chris had killed Nancy and Daniel. It was just known that they were all found dead in their home. So on that Monday night is when Raw would normally air. So they canceled, WWE canceled the scheduled three-hour episode of Raw and said replaced the broadcast with a three-hour tribute to Chris's life and career, featuring his past matches, segments from his like special DVD story, and comments from wrestlers and announcers about like what a great person he was. So this is a clip of Vince McMahon talking about Chris and all that. Good evening. Tonight, this arena here in Corpus Christi, Texas, was to have been filled to capacity with enthusiastic WWE fans. Tonight's storyline was to have been the alleged demise of my character, Mr. McMahon. However, in reality, WWE superstar Chris Benoit, his wife Nancy, and their son Daniel are dead. Their bodies were discovered this afternoon in their new suburban Atlanta home. The authorities are undergoing an investigation. We here in the WWE can only offer our condolences to the extended family of Chris Benoit. And the only other thing we can do at this moment is tonight pay tribute to Chris Benoit. We will offer you some of the most memorable moments in Chris's professional life. And you'll hear tonight comments from his peers, those here, his fellow performers, those here who loved Chris and admired him so much. So tonight will be a three-hour tribute to one of the greatest WWE superstars of all time. Tonight will be a tribute to Chris Benoit. But then once it was discovered the next day, I'm pretty sure, or very soon after, that Chris actually murdered Nancy and Daniel, Vince made a second statement basically saying that Chris Benoit's name would never be mentioned in the WWE again. And it really wasn't. Like I said before, he's basically been erased from WWE history. But then there's also an interesting clip of Chris Jericho, the wrestler that I spoke about earlier, and Jim Ross, who was a longtime commentator for WWE, talking about how Chris was erased from the history and basically how he would never be in the Hall of Fame, which if this hadn't happened, he would probably most likely be in the Hall of Fame. I get a question all the time, does Chris Benoit deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? And I say, absolutely not. No. The issue is, is that if Chris were here, we could talk to him. He would say, 
putting me in the Hall of Fame is gonna be one of the great distractions of the entire event. Because all it's gonna do is bring up Nancy and Daniel and Chris in their last 24 hours. So therefore I say, Chris Benoit does not belong in the WWE Hall of Fame, now or ever. You have two guys that were the same basically their whole life and had, had the same reputation of being just immaculate professionals, immaculate human beings, the nicest guys, and they both die very young and one's legacy is acclaimed and one's is buried to that you almost can't say his name. If you would have told Chris, you know, when you die, your name and your body of work is gonna be erased from existence forever, it would have broke his heart. Because I think if nothing else, I remember he told me once, like, listen, the critics are the critics, but if you have the respect of your peers, then nothing else matters. So to find out that he would have lost the respect, not only of his peers, his friends, his family, I don't think he ever wanted that. It almost took down the whole business. What Chris did almost, and that's another thing, what Chris did almost destroyed the only thing that he ever loved from a professional standpoint. The only thing he ever loved, pro wrestling, Chris Benoit almost destroyed it. That would have torn him apart as well. So it leads us around to like, why did he do it? And I don't think anyone's ever gonna be able to answer that question. So the main theories as to how and why this happened um, at the time this happened, the first thing that the media kind of latched on to and was the big story was steroids and roid rage. Um, it was common knowledge that Chris had taken steroids for most of his career, and it wasn't until the death of Eddie Guerrero in 2005 that the WWE got strict with drug testing. Chris also had issues with painkillers, which dated back to 2001 when he had to have surgery on his neck. So he was abusing steroids and painkillers. Prior to their deaths, police found texts between Nancy and Chris where Nancy had complained about his steroid use and roid rage. The term that's been being thrown around everywhere is roid rage. Some say steroid abuse is rampant at the organization and everyone just turns a blind eye to this. The media's initial response to the Benoit tragedy was that this was a roid rage incident. Where do steroids stand in the bizarre Benoit deaths? My understanding is that Chris Benoit was using steroids from when he was in high school. In the months before the murders, Chris received a number of text messages from Nancy in which she made it very clear she was sick and tired of his steroid abuse. Nancy definitely directly accused him of abusing steroids to the point that it led him to be an angry and violent and unhappy husband. So after his death and Eddie's death, and I think that there was a few other deaths around the same time, an investigation into a steroid ring in Florida identified 14 WWE wrestlers as clients of Signature Pharmacy, which distributed steroids, human growth hormone, and other drugs through clinics that used fraudulently, fraud, I can never say that word, fraudulently <laughs> yeah. written prescriptions. And Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero were two of the 14 wrestlers linked to the steroid ring. So like I said, in Chris's autopsy, his heart was three times normal size, and an enlarged heart's usually a sign of drug abuse, steroid abuse, things like that, and that is also what killed Eddie in the end. But Chris Jericho, he said that he believes that the by the time the murder-suicide happened, Chris wouldn't have been taking steroids anymore due to the drug testing that WWE had implemented. Um, this is a quote from him. He said, After Eddie died, WWE's drug testing was super strict. It went through the roof. You couldn't even take a high-power aspirin unless you had a prescription. And I'm not kidding. The drug testing was so strict. This rampant use of steroids, dude, you can't. 
You can't go snort cocaine. You can't smoke weed or anything. <laughs> so Chris Benoit. There's too many Chris's. There's Chris no, Benoit. So many Chris Jericho. Later, there's another Chris. <laughs> when I say Chris, it's Chris Benoit. Chris passed all the tests leading up to the murders, despite having nearly 10 times the amount of testosterone in his body compared to the average man. So what is this testosterone from? Why is it there? In an interview with Dr. Chris Berry, Georgia's top medical examiner, they were asked if the testosterone could have contributed to the murders. And she said, I think it's an unanswerable question. <laughs> so basically, Chris's toxicology results neither bolstered or debunked the speculation that anabolic steroids might have led to the murders. Steroids were found in Chris's home, but Dr. Chris Berry said that there was no evidence of any in his body, nothing to indicate the drugs played a role in the deaths of Nancy and Daniel. So the presence of testosterone could be attributed to the treatment Chris was receiving for testicular insufficiency. So after the Benoit family was found dead, Dr. Phil Aston claimed that he had been administering testosterone replacement therapy to Chris, which would explain the testosterone levels found in the toxicology results. So I guess there's never really been a concrete answer for this. There is a big conspiracy theory about the WWE didn't want like the steroid use to be known and like yeah. tried to push this big cover up and blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't really know what to believe, but I mean, the testicular insufficiency seems valid to me because that isn't that like an effective steroids, I steroids right yeah. yeah okay that's what i thought too so i mean that I, seems I'm not valid a, to i me. know everyone always says like you know oh, i don't know i won't, won't even say it but you know, i was gonna say like people on steroids <laughs> big bodybuilders usually have insufficiency yeah. down there <laughs> i don't know if that's true yeah. but it doesn't surprise me but I mean, it seems like it would make sense, especially with what Chris Jericho was saying about the drug testing. Kind of after Eddie died, they had to cut down on it. But you never know. Still a mystery, I guess. Vince McMahon, he was then on the Today Show. He said, it's impossible to think that this had anything to do with steroid abuse or roid rage. It was said road rage. <laughs> it's impossible to think this had anything to do with steroid abuse or roid rage. This was an act of deliberation over a three-day period, not an impulse. Which I also I think feel like is a good point. A good point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do like I do agree with some of that, but I also think he was probably in damage control because I feel like the steroid abuse probably led up to all this. Like when when you think about it, it's all tied in. He took steroids so he could be a wrestler. The re, you know the wrestling led to this CTE that he had, and you know all these type of things. So I think it's all tied in, and I think it's not necessarily a hundred percent true to st say that it didn't have to do with steroid abuse because I'm sure that was a contributing factor as well as many other factors in his life. Yeah, I agree. I think it was kind of like the whole mess of it, but yeah. I feel like it can't solely be blamed on steroids. Like, you know, you just do steroids and you're going to murder your whole family. Yeah, yeah. yeah I agree with that. So the other theory and other factor that kind of played into this was the brain trauma, which is what this whole episode is about. After the murders, Chris's brain was studied and they found that his mind was equivalent to an 85-year-old suffering from Alzheimer's disease because of the CTE that he had. Some symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, just to put them out there, feeling moody or withdrawn, especially in mentally challenging situations, confusion, changes in sleep restlessness, personality, and behavior changes, suspiciousness, and delusions or compulsive behavior, agitation, and aggression. So Chris's brain tissue showed severe CTE to all four lobes and to his brain stem. Um, in the study done on his brain, Dr. Bennett Amalu, 
noted that he read the diary entries that I mentioned before of Chris kind of like talking to Eddie after he passed away. And they included numerous references to Chris's depression and issues with memory lapses that he was having. And it's believed that his CTE was a result of years of concussions and unprotected chair shots, which soon after this happened, WWE would outlaw. I had to ask my boyfriend specifically what unprotected chair shots were. <laughs> and an unprotected chair shot is like a straight chair shot to the head, like, you know, like a metal chair that you see them hit each other with in wrestling. So back during this time, they would literally just smash each other in the head with the chairs, where now you kind of like, they still do it, but you put your hands up to block it. So you're not just getting hit in the head with a chair. Back then, you would just get hit in the head with a chair. So there's actually, I know, it's crazy. This is, um, there's a clip of Chris Jericho talking about that that I'm going to put here. In the 90s, we used to take chair shots to the head. That was a badge of honor. And what I mean by that is someone would swing a steel chair at your head. And I literally remember you would grit your teeth and you'd, you'd, you know, tense yourself and tense your neck. And just take it. They hit you in the head with it and you just take it. That was what you did. That was expected. If you had a concussion in wrestling, you just shake it off. Shake it off, go in there and do it. And all of us did it. Um, Christopher, this is the third Chris, Nowinski. <laughs> he was a former professional wrestler who worked with Chris and he was forced to quit because of head injuries that he sustained during his career at WWE. And he went on to do a lot of studying on this. He wrote a book about it. He said, part of me hopes there was something wrong with his brain. The Chris Benoit I knew was always more concerned about everybody else's well-being than his own. The initial media coverage all focused on steroid use, and I said, there's no way. I'm Chris Nowinski. I'm a former WWE superstar, and now I am a neuroscientist and run the Concussion Legacy Foundation. My wrestling career came to an end because I had a series of concussions that I didn't quite appreciate were concussions. I never stopped performing until the damage was sort of too much. So I decided I would start digging into what else was known and it became a book. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, is a progressive degenerative brain disease that appears to be started by hits to the head. When I heard about what happened with Chris Benoit, I immediately remembered a conversation I'd had with him maybe six months prior. I remembered that he had sat next to me in the locker room and he said, I heard you're writing a book about concussions. I was like, yeah. And he goes, I'm interested in what you're learning. And he's like, how many concussions have you had you know, before you had to retire? And I said, well, I can remember at least six, but I probably had more. And I said, how many have you had? And he said, uh, I've had more than I can count. And then he said, I'm going to give you my phone number and I want you to call me next week. The next week I called him. It sounded like he was in the middle of an argument. He was clearly agitated. It sounded like someone else was there. He just said, hey, I can't talk right now. Can I call you back? And I said, sure. I wonder if the reason he was asking me to call him was that he knew that something was going on. But he didn't quite appreciate what that was. And so I decided that I really needed to know if Chris had CTE. 
There was so much media attention, I really couldn't imagine his family answering the phone. But I said, I'll, I'll give it a try. And Chris's father answered on like, the second ring. He was in state of mind you could imagine when you just lost your son and learned what happened. I told him my theory. And he, he immediately said, yeah, I want, I want to see this done. So it seems like he had some sort of self-awareness to this. But today, concussions are taken much more seriously in professional wrestling. But at the time, WWE dismissed the idea that his career as a wrestler could have caused this. And then there's a picture of the brain. His brain. Yeah, it looks like a cauliflower. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that's really the full story for Chris. Um, I mean, it's still a lot of people. I guess the main thing is that people think steroids or CTE or both. And I kind of feel like, just from other stories I've heard, I feel like just the head trauma and CTE almost even in other circumstances, like, leads them to drink and do drugs more. And I don't know. It's I like a bit like of a like- perfect storm, like, all these factors. I think, you know, he wouldn't have had CTE if he didn't have this job and he didn't take the steroids and he didn't, you know, do all those things. So, yeah. Yeah. I just feel like it's a big fucking mess, especially, yeah. like, you could see the picture. We'll put the picture on the blog, which is, like, looking at the picture of the CTE brain with the normal brain. It's crazy. And it's crazy to think that at 40 years old, you have the same symptoms as someone who's 85 with Alzheimer's disease because of your brain is so essentially rotting in your head. Um, I did want to... There's been a bunch of what is suspected as CTE-related deaths and things like that in regards to the WWE, but one that happened semi-recently and um, kind of had some good information with it to support the CTE theory was Ashley Massaro. She committed suicide by hanging herself after suffering with depression and other neurological issues for years. She alleged her depression was exasperated because of head injuries she sustained during her four years with the WWE. So she actually became one of the plaintiffs in the ongoing lawsuit that I mentioned before, and she joined in 2016. So in the affidavit for the lawsuit, she said she sustained multiple concussions during her time with the WWE and that they didn't treat her injuries correctly. She claimed that the WWE used narcotics as a tool to allow her and other wrestlers to perform through the pain of their injuries. She also said, quote, I suffer from depression for which I take medication, migraine headaches, severe short-term memory loss. I attribute these issues to my work-related injuries sustained while working for the WWE and specifically to the routine repetitive blows to the head. Um, She alleged that on one occasion when she was literally knocked unconscious, she was just told to brush it off and keep wrestling. And she also said that during this period, the company was dealing with the Chris Benoit murder-suicide, so they were aware of the risk posed by CTE and the long-term damage sustained by the brain by repeated concussions. Um, She did request that her brain be donated to science to study CTE, but I've never really seen anything else come of it. I don't know if her family agreed to it. I can't find any updates since... um you know, 2019 when she's, they said that she wanted her brain to go there. Yeah. 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 That was all I saw too. I know sometimes I saw it when I was reading about like the NFL study, actually that that the family kind of has to agree to it. So maybe her family didn't want to, which kind of sucks for her if that was what she wanted, but I Mm. haven't seen anything else in regard to that, but I did think it was interesting how she mentioned 
um, that basically the WWE would have you take pain medication to be able to fight through the pain of the injuries when really you should just be resting and again like not taking time off not healing properly and just getting like concussions and head injuries while you already have a concussion so it also goes against what chris benoit's friend said about you couldn't even take an aspirin without having a prescription you know like it's if they were giving out narcotics just for them to be able to get through yeah I've seen people say that's kind of easy to get around the WWE wellness program tests, but I don't really know. Obviously, I'm not a wrestler, but there's been a lot <laughs> said about that either way. Okay, so that's the end of the episode. It is just Stephanie right now. I had to record an impromptu outro because this episode actually ended up going way longer than we originally thought it would, especially once we added in clips and everything. So I decided to cut the episode in half. So we'll finish here with Chris Benoit's story. And next week, we'll get into the story of Philip Adams, who's the ex-NFL player who um, murdered his former doctor, his doctor's wife and their two grandchildren, along with two air conditioning workers who are working on their house before he ended up killing himself and his family is claiming that they feel it's CTE related. So we'll get into all that next time along with our thoughts on CTE, whether we think that it had a factor in any of this, should it be a defense for murder, you know, with our very professional expert opinions. Just kidding. Um, And I'm only going to make you guys wait one week for the next part since it's pretty much already done. I just had to finish editing it. So the next part will be out next week, not two weeks, next Thursday. So make sure you guys check it out. As we always say, make sure you leave us a good review. Um, it's always great for us when you guys do that. And if you want to see any of the photos or video clips or anything like that we mentioned in this episode, go to truecrimesocietyblog.com. And you can find it all there, all of our sources and everything like that. We're on pretty much every platform. Just search True Crime Society. um, And truecrimesociety.com is now our forum. So make sure you check it all out. And we will see you guys next week with the rest of the CTE saga. Bye. Bye.